Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Welcome back to the first episode of the new year. After a brief break, I hope you're all very excited to learn about new facets of horror fiction and where the world of lore and history have helped to shape them into something lasting in pop culture and our memories. To start off the first topic of the year, I thought that we could go back to basics and look at something foundational. Food. Eating is something that everyone is required to do, and because of this, there is a lot of lore surrounding how and why we partake in our meals, and what they can consist of. Some of this is based purely on the physical. We are aware that we need certain amounts of protein and nutrients, and that we need to limit specific types of fats and other things that taste good, but are damaging in the long term. There's no shortage of information on food, good, bad, and subject to change as we learn, that tells us how to maintain our bodies, and ideally allow us to live healthy lives. All of this would be significantly easier to follow, if not for the intersection of taste, culture, restrictions, and beliefs that circle around what any given person eats. Just as there are certain foods that could be said to be sacred, there are also foods that we are theoretically forbidden from eating. Sometimes these restrictions can be temporary, such as a person giving up a kind of food for Lent, or someone who's weight training and abstaining from any kind of takeout that might skew their results. Others are more permanent, such as those who adopt a vegan lifestyle, or Muslims who abstain from eating pork. There's a lot that could be said in regards to what we do eat, but part of today's topic comes to us from those invisible barriers that people encounter in forbidden foods. If we think back to the tale of Adam and Eve, there was nothing to stop them from partaking in the fruit of the Tree of Knowledge, but their downfall serves to reinforce those borders around the idea that some things are not food, even if they are edible. The thing that trips us up in real life, however, is a little less tangible. After all, if someone breaks their vegan diet, depending on the person, the only real consequence might be their guilt over their actions, but there's no governing body that will hold them to any kind of punishment otherwise. Likewise, no one is going to immediately issue any kind of demands for accountability to a follower of the Muslim faith who may have accidentally eaten some pork. The strength of their own beliefs in both of these examples holds those barriers up, even if other people can't understand them or wouldn't think that they are worthy of any kind of punishment. That said, there is one invisible food constraint that is universally condemned. The eating of human flesh. Cannibalism is one of the strongest and most enduring taboos that has been part of human civilization since time immemorial, and it's not really difficult to see why. While some might dither about whether it's correct form to eat pet animals like cats or dogs, or animals that command our respect such as horses and dolphins, there's no one who has ever been able to make a successful argument as to the benefits of eating other human beings. That doesn't mean we haven't 
thought about it, however. Occasionally, casual eating of the poor has been suggested as a means of bringing attention to their plight, and consuming your fellow man has been used as a metaphor to highlight the cruelty and selfishness of human nature. In this way, cannibalism has been a very productive trope, not only in horror, but an underlying narrative that we continually develop about our society. And it's gotten no less productive as we go on. So I'm going to suggest you grab a snack, join me on our journey as I endeavor to be your guide to a history of cannibalism in fiction. There are some surprisingly larger names of fictional cannibals to cover, with one reigning supreme in the world of pop culture, but we'll be getting to him later on. In the meantime, let's take a look at one of the first places that you likely encountered this taboo. While most people might cite films like Cannibal Holocaust or Soylent Green as the first time that they were introduced to flesh-eating in fiction, the truth is that you have heard these stories a lot earlier than this. In fact, some of you hadn't graduated from the tricycle yet when you first heard the words fee-fi-fo-fum, and Jack is only one of many to encounter flesh-eating monsters in the world of fairy tales. Hansel and Gretel are actively fattened up by the gingerbread witch for the express purpose of eating them. Many of the heroines of these tales are pursued by an evil queen or a step-parent with the intent on serving them for dinner to an unsuspecting king, if not to savor their forbidden feast for themselves. Because killing your rival wasn't extra enough, you just had to make sure to eat their flesh, too. To be clear, many of these tales were using the taboo to greater ends than simply to scare people out of eating human flesh. After all, most people aren't needing to be told that it's wrong to eat your neighbor. I should note that there are a number of different interpretations to what the flesh-eating might mean, and with stories this old, especially stories that grow and change with the times, those meanings are a lot less stable and likely to shift depending on the teller, the political climate, and the time period, among other factors. We're going to unpack a few of them, as these stories have served to inspire some of our more ghoulish takes later on in history. As always, we can only cover so much, but I think it's worth it to get into what our first introduction to cannibalism was, and how it could have shaped our point of view on the concepts of evil and food. To do this, let's start with some of the most obvious good versus evil tales, the Fair Maiden and the Older Woman stories. Just thinking of the older woman and the younger girl, it's likely that a lot of you immediately thought of Snow White as envisioned by Disney. And you aren't entirely wrong in thinking of this particular heroine either, as it was definitely the intention of the evil queen to consume her, one way or another. For those of you who are only familiar with the dwarves who whistle while they work, Previous incarnations of the tale still featured the huntsman being sent to kill Snow White to appease the queen's need to be the most beautiful woman in the land. What's different is the trophy that he is to return with. It's entirely plausible that the Disney company decided to sub the heart in as the desired proof that the girl was dead for the romanticism, because there is a kind of poetic element to that kind of request. It's also a lot less on the nose than the prior incarnations of the tale, where the evil queen straight up asks for her lungs and her liver. In any case, the need for the huntsman to show up with a trophy of organ meats rather than something that would be easily identifiable, like her head, 
shows us that the intention was not only to kill the girl, but the queen had always intended to eat her too. Again, interpretations on the themes of these stories can definitely vary. But one thing that is very obvious in the case of Snow White is how the tale is driven by the fear of aging and becoming replaced by the younger generation. In older incarnations of the tale, Snow White is actually just a child, but the queen is utterly horrified of the woman she will become if the girl is allowed to reach puberty and thus sexual maturity. Her attempt to consume the younger girl can then be read as a way to not only take out a rival before her time, but also to absorb her essence in an attempt to steal more time to be young and beautiful. Writer Matt D.B. Harper of Allocation wrote that the evil queen does not eat to sustain life, she eats to obliterate Snow White and to, in some way, possess her characteristics. He adds that the cannibalism stands not for the mother's retaliation in terms of feeding, but rather in terms of sexual jealousy. This might all seem like a dramatic take on the tale, but it does reveal a lot in terms of how cutthroat a woman's station could be, and to some degree, still is. While this is just a tale, it's worth it to keep in mind that this same competitive need to remain young, beautiful, and locked in their role has a precedent in real historical monarchs. In 1610, Hungarian Countess Elizabeth Bathory and a number of other co-conspirators were brought up on charges of torture and murder of at least 80 girls. It's likely that number is much higher, considering her targets were often servants and peasants. Bathory, it was said, would bathe in their blood as a means to retain her youth and beauty. While there are no reliable accounts that she ever engaged in cannibalism, it's still worth noting how her need to remain beautiful required the sacrifice of other, often younger, girls. Harper commented that one of the things that set Snow White apart was that this was a tale that involved cannibalism among royals. This makes it easy for most of us to vilify the queen of the story, but it should be noted that the taboo act says a lot more about her and her role than simply to make her someone to be hated. For the most part, we understand that her actions are unforgivable, particularly since it's made clear that she intends to savor her victim as if to gloat over the fact that she won. Still, this just goes to show how important that victory is and how aware the queen is that eventually she will lose. Her station, as with many women born into nobility, is directly tied to both her beauty and her youth. As she gets older, especially as she reaches the later stages where she is less fertile, or if she is showing that she's unlikely to produce a male heir to the throne, her beauty is all that will keep her in the grace of the position she holds. A younger girl who has not yet proven that she cannot produce a new king would be a very real threat especially if it was a younger girl who was already of noble bloodlines. Given that the queen of this story is a step-parent, her claim to a royal title is not secure, and if we consider that women in this position could be, and historically were, punished for their failures to produce, we can see where her need to destroy her rival can be all-consuming unto itself. And she wasn't the only one to partake in this game of destroying the women around her. After all, 
In the end, though Snow White doesn't engage in the taboo act of trying to eat the flesh of her stepmother, the evil queen is made to dance to death in red-hot shoes at Snow White's wedding, no less. In this sense, the cannibalistic act that the protagonist engages in is okay because it was framed as not only inevitable, but also done in a proper way. Snow White is married to a good prince, and her power through both her heritage and her new union give her the ability to assume the rightful role of queen, at least until she grows older, and has a daughter of her own, that is. There are many women who can relate to a cutthroat world in which someone is looking to push them down the ladder to get better spoils for themselves. But many other fairy tales that involve cannibalism deal with something far more relatable to many. Hunger. In tales where the protagonists were poor, they weren't simply in danger of going without so much as they were usually on the brink of desperation. It's unfair to believe that we cannot appreciate that level of hunger in modern times, as the poverty line encompasses a large range of people in different levels of need. There are indeed some people today who can appreciate the pain associated with going hungry and the kinds of acts of desperation that it can cause. Historically, human beings have been forced to make some incredibly difficult choices in order to survive, and it is said that those choices were reflected in the horrors of the tales they told. Tales like Hansel and Gretel. According to Joseph Williams for the site All That's Interesting, this tale may have started in the Baltic region during the famine that swept through Europe starting in 1314. For most people, this should be a pretty familiar story, but in case you've forgotten a few key details, we'll just briefly recap it here. The story of Hansel and Gretel begins with a wicked woman who's usually a stepmother, though sometimes it is their birth mother. She's not the biggest evil in this story, however, as the family is destitute and on the brink of starvation. She convinces the children's father that the burden that the kids present is too much for the family, and that they have to lead the children to the woods and abandon them. On first attempt to do this, clever little Hansel leaves a trail of rocks in the woods, and he and Gretel follow them back home to safety. Still, the family continues to struggle, and once again the father is told they have no choice. Unfortunately for the children, their new trail was made of edible breadcrumbs that the woodland animals took for a free meal, and with nothing to follow back to their house, the pair become good and lost this time. Instead of finding a comfortable bear cave to stumble into and die of exposure, as they would have done in real life, they discover a house made of gingerbread that they immediately begin gnawing on. This turns out to be a clever trap, however, as a witch lives in the house, and she seizes the two, forcing Gretel to fatten up Hansel so that she can cook and eat him. This time, it's Gretel's turn to be clever, as she tricks the witch into a compromising position, wherein she's able to shove the old woman into her own oven and cooks her to death. After releasing her brother, they discover that the witch had been collecting riches, and they now had the means to save their family. When they find their way back to their father, it turns out that their wicked mother, who had been the one to insist on abandoning them, had perished off-screen, and with the ill-gotten gains from the witch they murdered, they can officially live happily ever after. As with all tales this old, there's a lot to tackle with this one, even before we get to the cooking and eating of people in it. 
We're going to start at the proposed beginning, in 1314, where a famine destroyed a massive amount of the population of Europe, and led to some of the most horrific acts committed in order to survive. Writer Ben Johnson for the site Historic UK wrote that the famine, caused by excessive rainfall and flooding, affected everyone from nobles to peasants, and that by the end of 1315, those who existed in the lowest rungs of society were forced to eat the grain seed that they'd been saving for the next planting season. By 1316, rumors of murder and cannibalism began to surface, as the situation became even more dire. Because of the scarcity of grain, there was very little bread, and even less to feed the livestock of the fields. Despite the attempts to gain control of the situation by King Edward II, who attempted to limit the price of food being sold by the merchants, the prices soared and effectively doomed anyone already living in poverty to starvation. The famine raged on for yet another year before the weather patterns finally began to normalize again in 1317, but the damage had been done, and the recovery would take another five years. This was an absolutely wretched time in history, and the struggle to survive ended in tragedy more often than it didn't. There were accounts of old family members committing themselves to death by starvation so that younger members of their households might survive. There were also tales of people descending on the recently deceased to try to dig up and eat the corpses of their dead. And there were tales of children being murdered and eaten by their families who were in absolute dire straits. If we think back to Hansel and Gretel, we need to revisit exactly what happened to them and why. The narrative goes to great lengths to create a monster out of the woman of the story, painting her as the enemy of the children who's ultimately out to do them harm. It's true that most versions of the tale have a mother figure and then the witch, but it is important to note that they play the same antagonistic role. That said, the first incarnation of the Wicked Mother is a lot more tragic if we consider that she might have understood all along what could happen to the children. In abandoning the kids in the woods, the mother and the complicit father are choosing to try to save themselves, but their murderous actions are more passive. Unlike in Snow White, the father is given no directive to murder or eat his children. He is told to lead them out into the deep woods where they cannot follow back. The objective here is not good or maternal, but it can also be read as being far less deliberate than the evil queen was. It's well established that both children are intelligent enough to survive, and though they might die, they may still yet survive of their own accord, which they ultimately do. That said, in order for them to survive, someone else had to die. Here's where the mother figure traditionally becomes more of a monster, though it's worth noting what is driving her evil nature. If we consider the possibility that the mother and the witch are one and the same, we can see the toll that starvation and the burden that children would have presented on the household. Looking at the tale from this perspective, the children are sent away and immediately find another house, this one being something that they can eat their fill of. It's not hard to get the metaphor of children eating someone out of house and home, which is difficult at the best of times. Because kids are not born with the inherent understanding of the impact of their actions, 
From their perspective, they're just lost and hungry. From their point of view, this gingerbread house is a dream come true. But to a struggling mother, it may be taken as a battle of trying to maintain a home with something in her life that has become all-consuming and even parasitic. It's not hard to imagine that in times of great stress, like a famine or a massive world-altering event that affects everyone, that one would look to their children in this kind of situation and start to see not their loving family, but an adversary that has to be destroyed in order to survive. After all, the children are the direct cause of the witch's death, and when they return, their mother has also perished. Given that the burdens of the household were traditionally placed on the backs of women, this struggle between the wicked woman and the children may be interpreted as the race to outlive the other in a battle they were never going to win, not unlike what we saw with Snow White. Unlike with the royals, however, this tale isn't meant to be about the mother or the witch, as they're mostly given no other characteristics other than to be cruel to the kids. Their deaths are far less interesting and mostly just a hand wave away. This story is meant to say something about the children by speaking to them as well as the rest of the audience directly. This is an important note to keep in mind as we need to recognize that despite a widespread belief that these tales were crafted specifically for children, they were never necessarily the intended audience. That isn't to say that they weren't expected to learn from the core values of the tale, however. As Harper stated in his article, the children are threatened with being eaten because they indulged in gluttonous temptation, something that is absolutely not allowed not only in pious homes, but poor ones as well. When times are tight, it has been the norm both historically and even now that everyone in the family needs to sacrifice for the greater good of keeping everyone together and alive. This is a lesson that children had to internalize in a famine, but it's also something that older family members needed to be reminded of. That sacrifice is painful and often comes in the form of going without, whether that means luxuries that other people take for granted, like new gadgets or even clean clothes, to the basic necessities like food. Food scarcity is something that comes up a lot in fairy tales that feature cannibalistic characters, as does the saving of the family by some means that allows them to defeat that which would devour them. In tales like Jack and the Beanstalk, the title character is initially taken to be swindled because he traded actual goods that could be sold for beans that no one else believed were magic. Upon finding the beanstalk the next day, Jack is able to discover a land that he would never have been able to reach before, and by extension, he's able to provide for his family. That's only after he kills the giant in the way, that is. Once again, we see the child character presented like a parasite to the villainous character of the giant, who has been presumably using the people of England as a food source. That alone is a bit of a clue as to one of the ways that we can interpret this particular tale. Jack, we will note, is not unlike our other characters that we've been looking at so far. He's caught in a predicament that leaves him in dire need of food, but the solution is on the other side of something that is going to consume him whole. The major difference in this tale is that unlike the evil queen, 
who was consuming out of jealousy and a need to retain her youth, or the gingerbread witch, who had embodied the eat-or-be-eaten mentality of a famine, Jack's threat is something that can be seen as a bit more tangible, even if it's not something that we can always touch. The giant isn't necessarily the cause of the food scarcity in Jack's life, but it is a being that both hoards wealth and feeds on his English brethren. There are a couple of different ways that we can see this figure, but it does have a pronounced looming presence over this boy and his life. The fact that he lives well above the child's country, in a place that would have been unreachable had it not been for mostly an accident on Jack's part, gives a sense of an elusive group like nobility, or even a governing body. This symbolism becomes a bit more on the nose when we think of how the giant declares that he knows what the blood of an Englishman smells like just from Jack's presence in the room. It gives the definite impression that this is something that he's had a lot of and brings to mind the image of someone like a tax collector. It's worth noting that, like in Hansel and Gretel, it is only through Jack's intelligence that he is spared becoming a meal and bringing home the spoils of what the giant had been hiding. There is no strength involved in this feat, and ultimately the young boy is capable of getting what he wanted by outsmarting something much more powerful than himself. In that sense, this tale can be interpreted as a fantasy that embodies the saying, eat the rich. It's true that the giant is never directly linked to the poverty that Jack lives in, but there is something particularly vulgar about the lifestyle he leads. Unlike in stories that are rooted in times of famine, like with Hansel and Gretel, the struggles of those who live in dire situations are largely ignored by the upper classes of society. While the famine of 1314 affected everyone, and the following years of the Black Plague were another great equalizer in the world, the wealthy merchants and the royals of history have been able to live in their castles in the sky and remain ignorant, often willfully so, to the pain suffered by those who go without. With this in mind, it's not an accident that this tale is one that has been adapted many times in more modern cartoons, some of the more notable involving trickster characters like Bugs Bunny. In these kinds of adaptations, the tale even downplays the role of food scarcity on the part of the hero and simply punishes the rich and the greedy by not only denying them what they want, but humiliating them as well. Of course, Bugs wasn't the first one to take aim at those in high society who weren't paying any mind to the desperate poor around them. In 1727, an Irish writer wrote a scathing essay criticizing the cavalier ways in which the powers that be were allowing those who lived in poverty to suffer in absolute misery. These days, a modest proposal by Jonathan Swift is a staple in many introductory English classes, owing largely to the way that the author structures his arguments and his use of rhetoric as a means to make an unsavory and ridiculous point. The point being, that the women reduced to begging in the streets of Ireland to feed their families should simply sell their young children to the upper classes of society as a food source, with the skins being used to make other goods like gloves or shoes. Swift's essay became rather infamous in this regard because he didn't skimp on the details, going over the different ways that children's bodies could be turned into specific dishes, 
and the way that the leftover hides could be used. It's only at about the halfway point in the essay that the writer tips his hand and reveals more directly exactly who this piece is aimed at. At this point, we should go over who Jonathan Swift was and why he chose cannibalism as his means to carry his message. As mentioned, most people who've taken intro English have some understanding of who Swift was as a writer through a modest proposal, if not through Gulliver's Travels. He's a known satirist whose work used some wicked wit, and especially in his books, scatological humor, to push his points, many of which were rather scathing and bleak. Swift was born to English parents in Ireland, but according to a biographical article by Robert Mahoney for History Ireland, always thought of himself as being English due to his background and his service to Queen Anne as a young man. A staunch Protestant, he was not a fan of the Catholics of Ireland, who made up the majority of the population, and even less okay with the small group of Presbyterians that had been residing in the country as well. According to Mahoney's article, Swift had been looking to continue to work in England full-time, and considered his station in Ireland as tantamount to exile. Clearly, this would be the last person you would believe would be the one to stand up for Ireland as an independent nation, and buck back against the draconian restrictions that the English crown had been keen to place on the country to keep them not only subordinate, but in dire states of poverty. That said, for all his loyalty to the British crown, Swift was a very vocal supporter of Irish industry, and pushed the ideas of promoting local industries over imported goods. He was also highly critical of absentee landlords that were bleeding their tenants of everything and creating the problems of wealth disparity in the country. If we take a review of A Modest Proposal, we need to look specifically at where Swift begins to take the mask off. The first part of the essay is meant to give the reader pause over the shock of what he's saying. It draws the audience in by the vile suggestion that these beggar children are only being productive to society as a means of food for the rich, and the gusto with which Swift describes their culinary uses are a bit revolting, even if they aren't anywhere near as graphic as the cannibals in fiction that we're coming to. Where shock becomes message begins when Swift gives an indication that the wealthy among them are already engaged in a kind of cannibalism, citing that landlords should be quite fine with the idea of roasting and eating children, seeing as they have already devoured most of the parents. As the proposal continues, Swift carries on with the logistics, but his anger is palpable by the end, his critiques circling around the way that the English rule has allowed not only the poor, but the old to fall into a place where they are in dire straits and has imposed so hard upon the country that even the young men are affected and unable to work. The end of the essay is blunt in its message that the welfare of the Irish people would be best served if those in power would address the issues of the landlords bleeding their tenants of everything they have, and if those in the country would support their own local industries instead of looking to outside imports. These were big issues that Swift had been pushing back against since as early as 1720, many of his suggestions being flat out ignored. 
By relying on the taboo to carry his message, Jonathan Swift caught quite a bit of backlash for his proposal, but it was finally something that couldn't be swept aside. His method of using horror might have been distasteful to them, but that might also have been because the horror in this case was openly hostile to the point where they couldn't ignore the message, nor how they'd been insulted. In some regards, the true horror of the plight of the Irish people was how systematically they were being trampled on by the English crown. Starting all the way back to the reign of Henry VIII, over 200 years before Swift's time, the Irish Parliament was only able to convene with the permission of the king. Over the next couple hundred years, the country would be saddled with restrictions on their trades, prohibited from exporting anything unless it was through English control, assuming they were allowed to export anything at all. In 1699, the Woolen Act denied Ireland the ability to export any of its woolen goods to any country at all, effectively kneecapping its industry and removing it as competition for English woolen goods. There were those in Ireland who held favor with the English court, but their status did little for the people who were left destitute and starving in a country with increasingly less autonomy. With this in mind, it's easy to see why Swift would have felt like he was battling a tide. The level of injustice against these people had been going on for hundreds of years by the time that he'd written a modest proposal, and after nearly a decade of writing well-thought-out and polite notices to help introduce changes to the system that were hurting so many people, Swift realized that he was going to have to get attention from the powers that be in a much more drastic way. Of course, this was a hyperbolic tactic to get attention to the ways that poverty was ravishing the Irish people and making their lives miserable. No one actually took him up on his proposal, though some were said to have missed the point entirely, and no one actually decided to breed Irish children for sweetmeats and fancy gloves. That said, this isn't the last that history saw of the skulking specter of cannibalism, and the Irish weren't the only ones who found themselves in a position where starvation was a very real threat. In fact, there are a number of American stories that have pitted people against the elements with dire consequences. For other tales, or just to find out more about how much cannibalism lingers in American history, do check out my show notes, but for our purposes, I'm going to focus in on the best-known instance of where people were trapped in a situation where they were forced to consume other human beings. We're going to be heading out on the Oregon Trail and taking a shortcut with a group that became infamously known as the Donner Party. Before we get to that, however, we're going to take a brief pause for a friend of the podcast. Take it away, Naomi. You remember that sound? Yeah, you do. The 1990s. It was fun! Lots of fun music, good times, bookended by pop bands. And right in the middle, we got a little grungy. So many artists came and went and left us wondering, what are they doing now? We know what Marky Mark ended up doing, but what about the rest of the Funky Bunch? Alanis Morissette had a pop career before she made it big with Jagged Little Pill. The KLF, an EDM band from England, got Tammy Wynette to sing on one of their tunes. 
All kinds of crazy stuff happened, and we're going to talk to you about it with interviews with some of the biggest stars of the 90s on Dope Nostalgia, the podcast. I'm Naomi Carmack, and I'm your host. Check us out on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts. And look us up on the internet at dopenostalgia.com. If you haven't already, do check out Dope Nostalgia because our friend has a lot of really great guest interviews and has even more amazing artists that she's lined up in the coming months. But until then, let's get back to the doomed trail that became known as Donner Pass. It's a piece of American history that a lot of people get the barest scrapings of, but the one part of the tale that has risen to the top is that the group that had been dubbed the Donner Party had been traveling on their way out west and ended up resorting to cannibalism to survive. To be fair to them, as we've already seen, there is a precedent for this throughout history and throughout different cultures, well before the American indigenous populations were in contact with anyone from Europe. In fact, as you'll recall, I had mentioned before that the act of getting caught in a harrowing situation where people are forced to make horrible, impossible decisions was uncomfortably more common than we might believe. While it wasn't an everyday thing, it certainly happened that people were forced to eat their dead, some of whom were at one point alive when the decision was made to eat them. That's getting a bit ahead of ourselves, however. So what makes the Donner Party such candidate to act as the pop cultural touchstone that it became? Surely you've heard the jokes about this, despite it being a fairly well-documented American tragedy. There's certainly enough ephemera out there in the form of cookbooks, games, and stories that has kept the events of the winter of 1846 from slipping into the backs of history books and getting forgotten there. The answer to that question is a little bit more complicated than we'll be getting into here, but suffice it to say that a bigger part of it is precisely because there is so much ephemera. After all, Moby Dick was inspired by real events that took place, including the sinking of a whale ship in 1820, a couple of decades before the Donners and company began their trek across America. Melville's novel might be heralded as an American classic, but there are multiple stories behind it, and the sunken ship that ended in tragedy and cannibalism for its surviving crew is just a passing note in historical records. The Donners, on the other hand, you don't have to dig too far to get the details on what happened. There's also the little added bonus that the lake where so many of the members of this party perished is still there, and there are real places where you can visit to see exactly where it happened. If you live outside of America, you might not know much about this event at all, aside from the whole eating other humans part. We're going to unpack this because this is a bit of a unique story about what drove people to survival cannibalism. For more on the differences in the types of cannibalism that one might be partaking in, we'll be covering a little bit of this in the coming up episode in two weeks' time. But for a brief rundown of this, do check out the videos by Caitlin Doty of Ask Mortician linked in the show notes. But with that, let's talk survival. Up to this point, you might argue that all the instances we've talked about could be classified as survival cannibalism. It's obvious in times of famine that people are looking to find food by any means necessary, 
and in the case of royals devouring their next of kin to stay secure in their positions, figuratively, it still boils down to survival of the last one standing. This, however, was a survival situation that was manufactured in a different way than what we saw in what was going on in Ireland during Jonathan Swift's time. In the 1840s, the United States of America was actually much smaller, much of the land still being under the control of Mexico, and large areas that were still being occupied by the indigenous populations. That wasn't going to last for long, with President James K. Polk in charge of the country who had just come into power in March of 1845. Polk is known for starting the Mexican-American War over Texas in April of 1846, though his true intention was to shake California loose from the control of the Mexican government. The San Francisco Bay was home to a very lucrative port that would open a lot of trade opportunities to the country, and Polk was eager to grab it before one of the more powerful European countries could claim it for their own. All of this came as a bit of a sore spot for Mexico, to whom belonged a fairly decent amount of what we know as America now. Still, those settlers who were living in the country were told that it was their God-given right to move out west as outlined in Manifest Destiny, and they were only emboldened by figures like Lansford Hastings. If that name isn't ringing any bells for you, you're going to want to remember it because this man is almost entirely responsible for why Truckee Lake in Northern California is now called Donner Lake. This American explorer had gone ahead and scattered out the areas of Oregon, Nevada, and California, and in his travels wrote a book called The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. This book became the essential resource for those looking to move west, into Oregon especially, but there were routes through the Sierra Nevada mountain range to get to California as well. There were a few issues with this book, not the least of which is that it promoted travel to a place that, as previously mentioned, didn't actually belong to the United States yet. There was also the issue that Hastings hadn't traveled everywhere he'd been promoting in his book, including a specific route that was touted as a shortcut called the Hastings Cutoff. This so-called shortcut was a route that he had seen on paper but had never traveled himself when he published his book. In fact, it was only after Hastings had struck a deal with a man named John Sutter that he tried the shortcut that carried his name and found it incredibly difficult to impossible to get through with just him and another guide. By the time he'd taken the Hastings cutoff, however, the travelers who had been reading his advice were already well on their way towards California. About now, we should probably go into why these families were making the trek out west anyway. It should be noted that the gold rush hadn't started, as no one knew there was any in California yet. All travelers had at their disposal was the promises of Hastings' book, and a hope that this new land would provide for them, better than the harsh winters and the swampy conditions of the East. Hastings had written about the Oregon Trail, and especially California, in such a glowing way that it sounded like a veritable promised land, especially to families who were suffering through what we would later understand to be malaria, which had been brought to America along with the people who were kidnapped as part of the slave trade. This was particularly bad for those living along the Mississippi River, who were finding that making a living was getting harder each year. 
In the years prior to 1846, many families struggled through hard winters and difficult springs as they tried to farm and found themselves getting sick when mosquito season came back every year. Going out west was a huge gamble and a difficult choice for many, especially when you consider that anyone traveling would never have seen where they were going and had been fed a number of stories through Hastings' book. There was also the issue of getting there, which many of the people who made the trek across the Oregon Trail did so by walking it alongside their wagons. The trip took months on end, and there was no guarantee of survival for anyone. There are gut-wrenching stories of women who were left behind after their husbands died on the trail, or husbands who lost their wives to childbirth along the way. Many children ended up dying on the road to Oregon, and the elderly didn't fare much better. And that was when they were traveling the route that would eventually take them the right way. As you can imagine, trying to travel in 1846 based on the writings of a man who everyone generally trusted, though few should have, and taking an already perilous journey where dysentery and any number of parasites and wildlife could bring you to an early end, would have been a massive undertaking that one would want to be extremely prepared for. While the travelers did the best they could for themselves when they packed up in Illinois, it's a bit hard to know how to pack for what Gizmodo's Esther Ingalls Arkell described as an apocalyptic blizzard on the horizon. That said, being prepared wouldn't have helped when the party had already made the mistake of leaving for their destination weeks too late in the season. Hastings himself had written that the trip from Illinois should begin no later than May 1st, or those trying to reach California were likely to be trapped by the snowy mountain conditions until spring, assuming they might make it through at all. As to why the members that would become the Donner Party left later than they should have, we can't say with any real certainty. What we can speculate, however, is that leaving late in the season would have been a good reason for members to consider leaving the established trail to take the Hastings Cutoff, even though they were warned by other travelers not to take it. It was a decision that would end in the death of many people. For a more detailed look into the disaster that was this traveling group, I highly suggest picking up The Indifferent Stars Above by Daniel James Brown, as well as checking out the other resources that are available in the show notes. For our purposes, however, we're going to focus on the highlights of what happened and why this piece of American history has continued to get attention. We're going to pick up this thread where things turn bleak, when Truckee Lake, in Northern California becomes Donner Lake. Upon arriving at this spot, the families and fellow travelers who had taken the Hastings Cutoff were well within the reach of their destination in California. The problem was the tons of snow that had made traveling it impossible. The party arrived at the lake by October 31st in 1846, and what greeted them was a phenomenon that would dump up to 22 feet of snow on them before the end of the winter. The weather shift is known colloquially as the Pineapple Express, so named because of its origins in the tropics. What's more important, however, is what it does. In this case, it caused those apocalyptic blizzard conditions that Inglis Arkell had mentioned earlier, making passage through the mountain range akin to a suicide mission. 
This would have been devastating to anyone traveling at that period of time, and possibly even today. But none of this helped the fact that by this point, the Donner Party were already well on their way to hypothermia and starvation. One of the issues that had come up already by the time that they'd reached the lake was a dwindling amount of resources among the travelers. What caused this particular issue was the cutoff that they had traveled and where it had led them. The Hastings cutoff was supposed to shorten their trip by about 300 miles, but in reality, had added over a hundred extra miles and several extra weeks to their journey. It had also taken them away from any green space where their oxen and cattle could graze, and instead took them through the Nevada desert, putting a strain on the animals to the point where many didn't make it. With the extra time added to their trip and the dead animals making it so they had even fewer resources, by the time they got to the lake, they were already exhausted and running on very little. This is where the Pineapple Express came in and the travelers were trapped at the lake with no option of turning back, dwindling provisions, and fewer travelers than they had started with. The cold temperatures only got worse and the snow continued to fall for over a month before the group split into two, one trekking out on homemade snowshoes in search of a nearby village of the Miwok indigenous people, and the other resolving to set up shanties at the lake to try to ride out the winter until help came. The deaths were soon to follow. The group that set out to find help, known as the Forlorn Hope Party, were faced with a treacherous journey, at one point making their way up rocky terrain that was nearly vertical in some spots. The snow only made things worse, and their progress was impeded even further when their best guide, Charles Stanton, went snowblind and eventually died. The group was able to continue only by the grace of the two Miwok men, who were now acting as their guides. But more deaths followed, and with it came the one thing that the Donner Party became known for. Having run out of food days earlier in the trip and starving as they forced their way onward, the group began to eat their dead. The only two to abstain were the two indigenous men, who were also now aware that the group was becoming more desperate and dangerous for them to be a part of. The Miwok men waited until the dead of night and eventually abandoned the group. And they were right to flee, as the conversations about killing and eating them had already started. Their attempt to escape was short-lived, as one of the party tracked them down and shot both bringing the corpses back so that they could be consumed by the others. Still more death and horror followed, with one of the party losing her husband to the elements, only to be horrified when the men around her roasted his heart in front of her. The party continued on still, and after traveling an unforgiving and meandering path finally found help. That said, the nightmare for the ones left behind at the lake was far from over. Rescue teams sent to find the snowed-in travelers were only able to bring back very few people at a time. Tragically, the party had been forced to stop only about a hundred miles from their destination, but the road proved to be very difficult in the winter, even for those attempting to rescue them. Food and supplies that were brought to those at the lake were scarce, and soon enough, they were gone. With the leather of their boots and shoelaces gone, and nothing else to eat, the surviving members of the Donner Party trapped at the lake also succumbed to cannibalism. 
By April of 1847, the last group of rescuers reached Truckee Lake to look for the last survivors of the Donner Party. What they found was the dead body of George Donner, reported to have his head split open. His wife, Tamsin, was nowhere to be found. Neither were any of the other members of the party, including a young child and an elderly woman. The only person they did find was a German emigrant by the name of Louis Kiesberg, a man who had been quite unpopular with the rest of those he was traveling with. His reputation of being a difficult man, some even claiming that he was cruel and abusive, particularly to his wife and young daughter, did little to endear him to those who found him butchering the internal organs of one of the other party members. Kiesberg was the last surviving member of the Donner Party, and the only one who was found by outsiders as preparing to eat the flesh of another person. By the time that he was brought back to their destination in California, of the 87 travelers who had been a part of this group to take the Hastings Cutoff, only 45 survived. In other historical events, where people have been forced to resort to cannibalism, the survivors have been met with everything from a slight brushing aside of what they had to do to survive, to showings of compassion and caring for the ones who were forced into such a horrible decision. History and the settlers in California were not so kind to the Donner Party, and particularly not so much to Louis Kiesberg. Though never charged with any crime, Kiesberg came back from the lakeside horror with the title of Cannibal Killer hung around his neck, and a reputation that would follow him to the grave. While it could be in part due to his uncomfortable disposition and how unpopular he'd been in the group, something that set the stage for how Kiesberg was perceived by the public was that he openly admitted to eating the flesh of his fellow travelers, and specifically that he'd been the one to eat Tamsin Donner. It may have been entirely likely that Kiesberg would have been painted as the villain of the group regardless, by virtue of the fact that he was the only survivor. His prior reputation didn't dissuade people from wanting to hate him anyway, and when we take into account that among all the people who had been left, he had survived over a family, two women, and a child. Then there was the violence of the acts that seemed to greet those who came to save the others. The fact that George Donner's head had been split open to get to his brains was a particularly gruesome detail that comes up often or the fact that the little boy's body had been used for food, painted a picture of a monster despite the fact that Kiesberg swore that everyone he ate died of natural causes. He even insisted that Tamsin had taken a fall and knowing that she wouldn't survive, insisted she wanted him to eat her. Few believed Kiesberg's story, and it made for even more damning evidence against him when he was found with money and jewelry from the Donners on his person, though he claimed that this was to give back to those who'd survived the ordeal after he'd been rescued. Kiesberg was never found guilty of any crime, as we said, but in the trial of public opinion, he was guilty and his reputation never recovered. There are a number of reasons why the Donner Party lives on in infamy as a pop culture phenomenon. One of the first is how close it is to the world around us in North America, both in location and in time. While the 1800s are not as close as all that, they aren't that far away either. 
We can trace that far back, and their way of life, while different for a lot of reasons, isn't unrecognizable in the same way that life in the 1400s would have been. In this regard, we can also relate, to some degree, to what would have prompted them to move in the first place. The call of opportunity and the promise of something that offers a better, more hopeful, and healthier future would likely sway anyone to take a risk. That said, perhaps one of the reasons that we are less sympathetic to the Donner Party is the reason that they became a part of history in the first place. Unlike other bouts of historical cannibalism that was prompted by the need to survive, or even cannibalism that was part of something sacred that honored the dead, this was cannibalism that was the direct result of that westward expansion. It is a bit unfair to be laying the blame at their feet entirely, considering that they were told that this was an option available to them, and the political and power structures around them had been working to make that a viable option through violence that they were largely not a part of. That said, their trek was entirely prompted by the idea that they had the right to do this, and that what they were moving towards was already theirs, despite the fact that it was absolutely not. The consensus among those who have written about this disastrous trip was that instead of forming stronger allied bonds to keep each other safe, warm, and alive, the travelers had been fighting quite a bit between each other long before the snow had fallen. It paints a picture of a group that was motivated not by the values that we commonly associate with sympathetic heroes, but a kind of self-centered need to be the last one standing. This was the specter that dogged Louis Kiesberg's every step from the time that he left the lake, but it now hangs around the entire group. We have no problem making jokes and creating fictional stories around those who had to take the harrowing journey because, in the end, they did not emerge the victims of a horrible circumstance, but almost more like unintentional villains in a tale that usually only hits the worst of the highlights. And with that, I think we can leave the Oregon Trail and those who've been forced to eat other people to rest for now. As you can see, history has a lot to offer us on the topic of cannibalism, which is likely why it's become such a mainstay in fiction. In fact, as you'll find out in the next episode, this is one trope that is going on strong in the world of horror and fiction in general. I hope that you'll join me next time when we talk about some of the most interesting and of course, the most famous, cannibals in fiction. And for those of you who are extra keen to find out even more about cannibals who didn't make the cut for my episodes, starting this year, you too can get some extra credits through my Patreon. Starting at the $2 level, extra credits include books and films that were either cut for time or didn't quite fit the discussion, but are well worth your time if this topic is of interest to you. One of the ones that's available right now is on Sweeney Todd. You can also get early access to episodes, transcripts, and even bloopers for those at higher levels. And a special thank you to my patrons, Maggie, Tim, Jonathan, Melissa, Rihanna, Bibliobot, and Megan. Without your support, this podcast wouldn't be available on all the platforms it is. Your support means a lot to me, and it makes it that much easier to continue doing what I'm doing. Thank you so much. Extra special thanks goes to Jonathan Glass for his work on the sound editing. He is the musician behind the musical project Sea of Dead Faces, 
as well as his solo work under the name Jonathan Glass. Check him out on Spotify or Apple Music for some dark, atmospheric tunes. And with that, thank you all again for joining me. Next time we're going to be getting a good look at how cannibalism has been a big part of our popular fiction for quite some time, and exploring how these narratives about eating people can say so much about our fears, and even more about how we love. But until then, remember to keep studying, and wherever possible, let curiosity be your guide.